Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage here on Monaco 24. This week, we speak with Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser. I don't think people think that we should shut down protest. That is a right that we're guaranteed by our Constitution. I think people feel strongly about. People don't want to see violence. And they certainly want us to be smart about our intelligence gathering. I think it was a failure in intelligence gathering to know that there were real violent people who were willing to overthrow their government. Plus, Britain's beloved satirist Marina Hyde. We had Brexit referendum, we had Trump, we had Boris Johnson, a pandemic. And I would love to say that we were meeting on a day that we could just look back on all of this and say, gosh, it was so chaotic for years. But since the advent of Liz Truss, I have to say that, if anything, things have become more chaotic. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show in Washington, D.C., which has been the epicenter of protest for as long as the country has existed. But for Mayor Muriel Bowser, the city isn't just a stage. It can be a part of a conversation, too. Monaco's Andrew Tuck spoke to Mayor Bowser at this year's edition of City Lab in Amsterdam for The Urbanist. Now, one of the stories that we covered in great detail on The Urbanist was the Black Lives Matter movement and what happened in D.C. and the creation of this plaza, which became a, a kind of a release valve in a way, a place where people could go and protest and, and feel that the city was taking notice. How important do you think it, that moment was it for you to engage with the needs of the protesters and the anger that they felt? It was critical to have a safe place for people to grieve, to express their anger, to demand change from the federal government. It was important for us to maintain public safety and order and to use art to do both. People were protesting police brutality, and I think most people can separate the need for protection in law and order from that protest. So you need to be able to have people in a safe environment, but you also need them to be able, whatever the topic is, in this case it was police brutality. But even at that moment, I presume you had to keep lines of communication very open with your police authorities, as well as the people who were protesting and the organizations that were bringing people out onto the streets. How did you balance well, those two things? Protests, there is organization, sometimes it's spontaneous. And so when there are organized protests, our police departments talk to organizers, and a lot of times there can be more and better arrangements, whether it's for where the police are going to be, where all of the 911 services are going to be, down to where the bathrooms are going to be. That can happen when there's organization. You saw that with the Women's March, for example. Well, even that, some of that was spontaneous. But the protests in, this, in that summer of 2020 were largely spontaneous. And tell me, the January 6th demonstrations, which we're only now really beginning to understand how they took place, a little bit more of the the incendiary things that happened behind the scenes. Again, when that was unfolding in the city, much of that policing you know, obviously didn't sit with you or with, with your police authorities. 
Was that difficult to sit back and see on your TV screens what was happening in the city that you govern? Well, we certainly weren't sitting back. We were in our police headquarters trying to coordinate with federal authorities, especially the Capitol Police, to make sure they had what they need to get more assistance from the National Guard, which is an arm of our military, to make sure that they had what they needed. For you, for the people who have dealt with all of these protests, but especially what happened on January 6th, are you cautious when people on the right, especially on the far right, now want to protest in the city more than you were before? Is there a feeling from some residents that there should be controls to stop protests happening? Uh, I don't think people think that we should shut down protest. That is a, a right that we're guaranteed by our Constitution. I think people feel strongly about. People don't want to see violence. And they certainly want us to be smart about our intelligence gathering, especially the, the national intelligence infrastructure. I was just asked there, did I think it was a failure in policing? I think it was a failure in intelligence gathering to know that there were real violent people who were willing to overthrow their government. In our heartbreaking story that we reported on The Globalist this week, we spoke with Letitia Bader, Horn of Africa Director, Human Rights Watch, on the humanitarian crisis in Eritrea. It is incredibly difficult to do real-time reporting on this conflict because um, the federal government of Ethiopia has deliberately prevented both access for journalists to the region, but also by cutting off the communication. I mean, this is a region where there has been no internet for over two years. There's currently no phone communication. So it's very difficult to know. But what we are hearing and the information which is managing to come out really points to both massive mobilization of forces and heavy fighting, including um, heavy aerial bombardment of um, areas in, especially around the border with with Eritrea, but but, but not only. Um, So real concerns, I mean, in terms of the human rights trends, which we documented in the first um, eight months of the conflict, when there was heavy fighting in Tigre as well, Um, We are seeing um, potentially unlawful strikes. We're definitely receiving reports of civilians being killed in airstrikes in different locations, massive civilian displacement, civilians having to be displaced on multiple occasions because they are fleeing um, the, the fighting which is going on. I do think it's important to continue to underscore that even though there was this five months of truce, in that period, serious abuses continued. And one of the gravest abuses which um, an international UN commission has actually um, characterized as starvation as a method of war was a siege on the region. The, The government hasn't only restricted communication with the region, but throughout the the period of truce, it severely restricted access for aid, but there was still no electricity in the region. Fuel was hardly entering the region, which made it incredibly difficult to distribute the little food getting in to to communities. So we really are talking about a modern day siege, which has been going on for almost two years. What do we know about what's happening? You're saying that there's a news blackout and that there are various uh, reports of, of terrible humanitarian crisis ahead of us. But what stories are you hearing about what's happening to people on the ground? 
Well, I mean, displacement, displacement again. I mean, some of the gravest abuses that have happened in this conflict have happened in Western Tigray zone, which is an area which remained under control to date by Amhara regional forces, the federal government, but also Eritrean forces. There's been a lot of reporting um, recently that Eritrean forces are re-entering the, the war, but in many ways that is erroneous. The Eritrean forces never left Tigray. They were in Western Tigray throughout the period of humanitarian truce, etc. What, what is happening is the Eritrean forces are entering in, in many different parts of, of Tigray as we speak and in incredibly large numbers, as are the federal government forces as well. Tell us a little bit more about this Eritrean military mo- mobilisation. We, we have, what, 100,000 soldiers reportedly being sent to, to Ethiopia to bolster the, uh, the, the Ethiopian forces and indeed the, the human rights abuses involved in Eritrea to, to fulfil that requirement have been dreadful. Absolutely. I mean, I do think it's important to underscore that the Eritrean army is an army of forced conscript, of forced labour. These are individual who are conscripted into the military for life. Now, what we've been hearing in the last six weeks has been conscription now of what of, pe- of, of people who are considered reservists for the Eritrean army. So these are older people who are in theory out of the army now who are being conscripted up. And we're also hearing reports of serious reprisals against families, people being kicked out of their homes, homes being boarded up if the individuals which the military and the administration are looking for can't be found. So so this is one of the key parts of this horrific conflict is that it is being fought also by this this army of, of conscripts who have no choice but to be in, in, in this, this army and have been in many cases for, for years upon end of, of their life in, in horrific conditions. I mean, in terms of the stories we're hearing as well, because of the effective siege, which has been ongoing in Tigray for such a long time, are the, the inability of hospitals to deal with the casualties of the war, which is happening. Um, in, in Shire town, for example, where there have been reports of multiple strikes, um, but also where there have been um, aerial bombardment around the town of Shire. There are survivors being brought into the main hospital there. But this is a hospital already in January when we were speaking to doctors who were working there that had really run out even of the basic equipment, even of of gloves. Um, So now they're having to treat, you know, war wounded individuals, civilians who are being brought in with, with very, very little, if anything at all, to treat people. So we really are talking about both direct abuses and in the direct um, abuses as a result of the deliberate um, cutting off of this region from the world. And how much is this dragging neighbouring countries in? Obviously, Eritrea is closely linked and is and is connected and deeply involved in the conflict. But neighbours as well, I mean, how are they being affected? Well, Sudan initially was was very much affected by by the first two months of the conflict when around 60,000 Tigrayans fled into Sudan. Now, part of of the abuses which civilians in Tigray have faced is that that route is now cut off. We've repeatedly documented first federal government forces and then their allies, Amhara regional forces and militia, basically shooting at and, and, and on occasion killing individuals who were trying to flee into Sudan. So that that number and that that trickle has really gone down to a trickle of refugees fleeing into Sudan. But we definitely are seeing um, 
people finding ways to to escape the region, but but in very small numbers, and that's obviously affecting Kenya as well, um, in addition to Sudan. So so we really are talking about. Um, and, and the impact of the humanitarian crisis, which is not only affecting this area, but other parts of Ethiopia as well, is, al is also affecting neighboring countries with arrivals of people who are seeking humanitarian assistance for other reasons. Also, there's a massive drought which is ongoing in parts of Ethiopia as we speak. And all this is compounded by the conflict which is ongoing and, and resulting in, in neighboring countries receiving um, individuals who are fleeing this, the humanitarian crisis. Of course, Kenya in particular, has played uh, an important part so far in trying to broker a cessation of hostilities and, and, and to get the parties around the table. So at the political level as well, the African Union are um, leading the mediation efforts, but, but it's very clear that so far um, key concerns are that despite these efforts to broker talks, the conflict is ongoing and the abuses have never stopped. You are listening to the curator of Monaco 24. Time for the Foreign Desk Explainer. Haiti's government has asked for urgent military assistance from the international community to deal with the chaos caused by gangs. Andrew Muller examines whether storming another country is always a bad idea. In the 21st century, military interventions have acquired a dismal reputation. The US-led invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan are widely perceived to have caused at least as many problems as they might have solved. NATO's insertion of its oar into the civil war in Libya features in few, if any, textbooks. Russia and Turkey's barging into the conflict in Syria struck nobody as exercises in pure-hearted peace-bringing. These Syrian protesters in the town of Al-Nairab in Idlib don't want Turkish or Russian troops in their area. The two military powers are patrolling a section of the M4 highway. So it will be surprising if anybody is terrifically quick to put up their hand for a military intervention in Haiti, even though they are being urgently asked to do so by the government of Haiti. Haiti's acting Prime Minister Ariel Henry has admitted in a televised speech that Haiti's chronic gang violence has escalated far past the point at which Haiti's threadbare police and military are able to deal with it. Haitian authorities have not even been able to prevent said gangs from blocking Haiti's main fuel terminal, meaning that getting such basics as food and fresh water to Haiti's people is contingent on the whim of criminals. Added to which, Mr Henry's plans for ending government subsidies on fuel have proved predictably unpopular, with protests frequently escalating into violence, arson and looting. Buildings were set ablaze and food warehouses looted, including one operated by the Catholic organization Caritas. A World Food Program facility in the town of Gonaive was also looted and burned, WFP officials said. Transport services and other businesses have closed, and so have schools and some hospitals. We can't sell anything. There's no gas, and we can't sell to the motorcycle and taxi drivers because they can't find gas to work, and they are my customers. There have been reported cases of cholera. Three years ago, an outbreak of that disease killed at least 10,000 Haitians.
None of this is entirely new. Haiti, the poorest country in the Americas, has become proverbial for its chaos, corruption, poverty and violence, punctuated by the occasional apocalyptic earthquake. As recently as July, fighting between rival gangs across the capital, Port-au-Prince, left hundreds of people dead and compelled thousands to flee their homes. And that came a year or so after the assassination of Haiti's president, Jovenel Moisi, who was murdered when a group of gunmen, apparently Colombian mercenaries, stormed the actual presidential residence. It was around 1am, she says, when the shooting started. It wasn't something small, it was the sounds of automatic weapons. All of which is by way of observing that Haiti's bar for what constitutes catastrophe is set pretty high. If its government is basically pleading to be invaded, things must be really remarkably dreadful. The UN Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, believes that Haiti has a case. He has asked the UN Security Council to consider authorising the dispatch of troops. He urged the international community, including members of the Security Council, to consider as a matter of urgency the request by the Haitian government for the immediate deployment of an international specialized armed force to address the humanitarian crisis. There is an amount of history where this sort of endeavour and Haiti are concerned. The record, it is fair to say, varies. In 1915, the United States invaded Haiti following the assassination of a previous Haitian president, the seventh to have been killed or overthrown in a four-year period. Haiti remained an American protectorate until 1934 and under US economic control until 1947. In 1994, the United States threatened another invasion by way of forcing the resignation of a military junta which had seized power in Haiti three years previously. Once the generals had quit, the Americans stayed to oversee the restoration of exiled President Jean-Bertrand Aristide. These forces were succeeded by the first of a succession of UN missions, burdened by increasingly unwieldy and unpronounceable acronyms, UNMIR, MINUSTA, and Minujast folded its tents in 2019. If there is to be a successor mission, the going will be tough. First, there would be the challenge of scaring up the troops. The UN Security Council can pass resolutions mandating the deployment of peacekeepers all it likes, but it cannot compel member states to contribute soldiers. And even if it can persuade them, this rarely happens quickly. Former UN Secretary-General Kofi Annan once likened the arrangement to a fire brigade that waits for the fire to start before acquiring a fire engine. Furthermore, judging by the protests which have erupted since Prime Minister Henri made his plea, any incoming blue helmets cannot expect to stroll to their barracks through a blizzard of rose petals flung by deliriously grateful citizens. Many Haitians have rejected the idea of another international intervention, noting that UN peacekeepers were accused of sexual assault and sparked a cholera epidemic over a decade ago that killed nearly 10,000 people. In the disturbances which followed Henri's address to the nation, several people have been shot, at least one fatally, and beleaguered police have resorted to tear gas to disperse rioters and looters. 
Haiti's ambassador to the United States, Boshit Edmond, has suggested that the way around these obstacles might be for the US and Canada to act on their own initiative. This might be a difficult sell, but it is not necessarily a bad idea, as one potential and not dissimilar precedent demonstrates. In 1999, before Iraq, Libya and others gave intervention a bad name, Australia led a peacemaking operation into East Timor, where pro-Indonesian militias were committing widespread mayhem in a bid to terrorise the Timorese out of any ideas about independence. Hundreds of people had been murdered and nearly half the population driven from their homes, which is to say, in terms that any Haitian listeners may find wearily familiar, gangs of criminals were ruling through fear. The troops who landed in Timor swiftly discovered that the marauding thugs who had fancied themselves such brave warriors and or swaggering gangsters while conducting the massacre of defenceless civilians were significantly less keen to try their luck with heavily armed professionals. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller. And now to something a little bit lighter. Born on the outskirts of Paris, since arriving in London, artist Lea San has taken a studious approach to her music. The mellifluous melodies and fresh electronic production of her debut EP, You Off Now Part 1, caught Confect's attention earlier this year. We sent Paige Reynolds to Sands Garden to catch up with the artist and hear about her journey so far for the latest episode of Confect Corner. There was a lot of music in my house, obviously, because of my dad. My dad was like producing kind of like Caribbean music, because he's from Martinique. It's kind of mixed. Sometimes he would also like do R&B stuff. And my brothers, I think, or maybe the one that influenced me the most. I was like the younger sister that was just like singing, but they were both playing instruments. They were playing saxophone and piano. And they would listen to, from Robert Glasper to Miles Davis to... I don't know, it just went everywhere. We'd have Pharrell Williams, we'd have, yeah, Anyadi, and then there was a lot of jazz, obviously, but a lot of R&B. Love hip-hop. It was weird. I wasn't necessarily listening to a lot of things myself, but I was just kind of absorbing everything like a sponge. I remember once, like, I had been playing for a few months and I was playing in the living room and my brother just came downstairs and he was like, can you not hear what you play? <laughs> can you not hear that when you sing over that chords, it sounds crazy? And I was like, what? And then I just started, like, learning theory a bit more and they were teaching me some basics, especially with theory. We'd go to the piano and they'd show me some stuff and, and I would try and learn that. And then they would give me, like, websites or musicians to study, and then I would do that studying on my own. So it was kind of like a little school at home. But at the same time, they were, like, 20, 23, so they were busy with their own lives. Sometimes in Paris I hear things, and I feel like it's people trying to sound a certain way, like trying to be in a certain style. While in London, I find so many 
people that are just in their own lane and they sound like no one else and it's so unique and it's yeah it's so inspiring when I moved here I just kept on meeting people that I thought were so talented and so skilled but no one knew who they were and I was like what <laughs> and like literally every corner I'd meet someone that was like producing everything themselves like composing everything and it, was, it sounded sick they could play like five different instruments really well they could sing it's like what to another country you don't really know people so it's hard to invite people in your very intimate personal space in your world like my music is everything to me because I don't really have much else here in London like I'm slowly building a life here but I haven't really been here for long so I really take my time I'm afraid I'll regret it doesn't feel I was like learning a song from Alan Hampton. He's a guitarist and bass player and singer. He plays bass a lot for Robert Glasper and these people. And I think I was learning a song from him and I just got this weird pattern and then I started like playing around with it. And then I was like, oh my God, no, this is a love song. What am I doing? But I thought, you know what? I never really write love songs, so I'm just going to stick to it. But it's kind of a love song that's also like, I don't like myself. I like this, but I don't know if I'm good enough. <laughs> Questioning if you're even like worth that love. And then I was like, oh, should I do something to this song? And then my brother was like, no, keep it that way. I was like, cool, okay, song is done. <laughs> So I feel like I'm Blue I Made It before all the other songs. I actually put it out in 2020, but just by myself, I was just like, whatever, I'm just putting this on the internet, see who feels it. And then, yeah, people started reaching out. They were like, oh, I love that song. I was like, what? The process of making it was so weird. I was just like playing this complex, weird, like finger-picking pattern with the chords. And I, I loved it. I can't remember what it was, but I loved it. And I was like, I'm going to record this and produce it. And then I tried and it was so hard, it just didn't work. And I thought, okay, I need to simplify this. And I just started playing the really simple guitar parts. And I was like, it just kind of hit something emotionally. I was like, cool. And I had this concept in my head of writing a song about myself in the future because all the songs that I was writing, I felt really disconnected to. I felt like this is not mm. really where I'm at in my life. So I feel like Ambu, I was like, cool, we need to connect with the vision. Like, where do you see yourself realistically as well? Like, I didn't want to just be like, oh, I see myself in a big mansion with tons of money and everything's great. I was like, I'm probably going to be sad. I don't know why, but I'm going to be sad. Like, I'm going to do things better. I'm going to love better and I'm going to connect with people with more maturity and stuff. But... I also had to recognise that I'm not going to be good every day. I've been like developing more and more techniques. The number one is don't think. Sometimes it's just I stand up and I just walk around and I try to not think. I just try to like, I don't know. For example, earlier I was writing a song 
and I just started thinking about, oh, but like, what about this melody? Is it gonna feel this way? And it never works. You can't think a song, you can't think it in a way that's gonna hit people emotionally, because if you want people to connect emotionally, you need to connect emotionally, and emotions are not, yeah, you can't, I don't know. Yeah, so that's a dumb technique, but I'm just, just don't fucking think about making it, just think about anything. You can't stop thinking, but don't think about actually making the thing, just sing whatever. So definitely like standing up and like not looking at the door and just singing around. And I mean, it sounds stupid, but for so long, I was just staring at my door, like trying to make a melody and thinking, how can I make the best melody? And just being so rational about it that nothing was really coming out. I've been spending so much time on Pinterest. Now I just make Pinterest while I'm making the songs and I'm just going through the Pinterest and I'm just singing whatever I see, which is really like fun because it's kind of an exercise. Do I even know how to say this thing or how do I describe this or how do I connect to this? Definitely also tons of reading. I've been reading a lot more the past year and I love to have a book next to me and just open the book and just sing the words that I see. I don't know, because it's like you can just open a random page and then you see an expression. And maybe it has nothing to do with what you're talking about, but you can just put it in your own context. And it really works. Sometimes I'm like, there's nothing in my brain. I mean, generally, I make music and then my brain is empty. And I just look at the song and I'm like, how am I supposed to write something? So you need sometimes to get inspired externally, mm. like often even. Obviously, conversations with friends, having a call. I was going to say, start an argument with your friend <laughs> <laughs> then write about <laughs> The Revenge album's coming. The Revenge album, yeah, man. Got many songs. <laughs> many, many songs. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You're listening to The Curator. And now a highlight from my show, The Stack. I had the pleasure to speak with Marina Hyde from The Guardian on her new book, which is a compilation of her columns, which I love. The book is called What Just Happened? Dispatches from Turbulent Times. Let's hear from Marina. Let me be clear with you. The fir uh, First of all, I couldn't remember writing huge amounts of it because there's just been so much news over that. I mean, I start this column about a week, this, sorry, this book, about a week before the Brexit referendum in 2016. And then we had, obviously, the Brexit referendum, we had Trump, we had Theresa May, her weird snap election that plunged the country into complete chaos because she didn't have a majority anymore, the kind of agonising attempt to get a Brexit deal, Boris Johnson, a pandemic. And I would love to say that we were meeting on a day that we could just look back on all of this and say, gosh, it was so chaotic for years, but here we now are in a period of sublime calm. But since the advent of Liz Truss, I have to say that if anything, things have become more chaotic. And the Queen and so many other things so have changed. So many other things. The war. You know, yeah, and I, I mean, you know, there was sort of, you know, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, all these massive movements. I mean, it's just been a sort of tumultuous time, really. And so, yeah, when I was looking back at lots of these columns, I thought, my God, I mean, there were so many things that I sort of hadn't quite remembered and thought, God, did that really happen? 
I called it what just happened because I still react with sort of shock to the fact that some of these things really did occur. But there they are. They did happen. And I wrote a column about them at the time. It's such a pleasure reading your columns because sometimes you literally are writing what a lot of us are saying about this, the absurdity of everything that's happening as well, because it's a mixture of there's, of course, lots of humor in it as well. But but also like, well, actually, it's kind of serious. too. Yeah, I mean, the stakes are always really high mm. and they've never been higher, really. And that's always something I, you know, I try to use humor because I think it's a really good way to reach people. And, there, you know, there are some people that I read who I think, God, you're making such great points, but I slightly feel like I'm being shouted at. So I try to sort of use humour to reach the reader, but I'm always on the side of the reader. I'm always someone who wants to say... I share your despair. I share the fact that you threw your hands up at the television when you watched the news last night. Because I think ultimately, I'm very interested in people and characters in the way I write about lots of these things. And I suppose a lot of comedy comes from characters often failing to enact their plans or just failing to manage events. But I suppose the people I'm most interested in are the people to whom politics is done. And I think a lot of us have felt over the last few years that politics has been sort of done to us rather than in our name. (laughs) One thing that you mentioned here in the book, I believe in the introduction, you say people say people are tired of politics, but actually they're clearly not, right? I mean, it's quite the opposite in a way. But you can't be tired of politics. That's the trouble. I mean, in the old days, you know, and I'm not even going back that much time, you were able to quite cheerfully ignore the news for two weeks, just quite cheerfully sort of check in and think, oh, I see that's what's going on there. Over this period, it's become a thing where you have to sort of check in every day. What does it mean for, you know, people were watching BBC Parliament Channel on these mad sort of Brexit votes thinking, will it ever be over? Now, you know, as I say, the stakes get ever higher. Now people are thinking about their mortgages, their livelihoods, the cost of living, which I always find a sort of rather affectless phrase, but which is a sort of terrifying phrase. You know, it's the price of existing. The stakes are hugely high or So it's quite difficult not to think about politics. Ideally, we should all be in situations where we don't have to think about politics. (laughs) This is the mark of a calm period where tolerance and prosperity are increasing rather than a chaotic period. However, we are not in one of those. And there are some moments in the book, I mean, besides the dispatches, there's some touches of kind of a more showbiz stories in a way. But but politics and showbiz, they are quite, as you mentioned before we started the interview, they're they're quite interconnected in a way, right? I think you're totally right. I used to do a showbiz column in The Guardian Hmm. called Lost in showbiz and I think that was the column I first kind of found my voice in and I was writing about celebrity culture in the 2000s when it was kind of the only subject with the possible exception of like Islamic fundamentalism there were these two like you know it was crazy it was an explosion of celebrity culture and so it was a great time to be writing about it but I kind of got the voice in that column first. But now I sort of feel that politics itself has become a sort of reality show with these ridiculous, preposterous characters emerge who are kind of ill-suited to the top. You know, the, the train wrecks. People used to write a lot about train wrecks and we've gone back and looked at that way of covering celebrity culture and thinking it was awful the way people wrote about Britney Spears or Lindsay Lohan or whatever it was at the time. But I have to say that I think the kind of train wreck trope has moved into politics. I mean, I watch like lots of cabinet ministers and think... I mean, I watched Kwasi Kwarteng do a U-turn this morning and thought, this is like pure train wreck stuff. I feel like I'm watching a genuine train wreck. I saw that as well this morning. Yeah. It is a bit mad. 
Uh, Marina, what's your process of writing a dispatch? You know, because they're, 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 they're quite they're quite long. They're they're lovely pieces. How, how many words each one, more or less? I, I mean, they're always about a thousand words. Mm. Sometimes a bit longer, and sometimes a tiny bit shorter. But generally, about a thousand words. My process, it usually comes from the heart. I don't it, know how to describe that. It comes that. from the heart, and I'm on a deadline. This is this is the reality. It, journalism is a trade and not an art, and I'm very kind of strong on that. I get up very early in the morning and I open a word document, and I never start at the beginning. I just like write some random things that I'm thinking in and I kind of move them around and I cut and paste them and out of this kind of soup, this primordial mess staggers something now it might be a hopeless column or it might be a half decent column but something eventually staggers out within two or three hours and I really never know in many ways what I am thinking until I've gone through the process of writing about it. That's definitely something I feel. I don't sit down with some kind of thesis that I then think, I oh, know I must set this down from the opening paragraph and conclude in the end. I don't write like that at all. It's actually the act of writing that helps me think what on earth I think about half this stuff. And how a fun one. After doing practically everything you could possibly imagine when it comes to stunts on planet Earth, it's emerged that the only place left for Tom Cruise to do something dangerous is in space. The actor could be the first civilian to conduct a spacewalk. He follows in a growing line of famous and powerful men who perhaps, not content with boring old terra firma, have done their best to slip up the surly bones of Earth and dance the skies on laughter-silvered wings. The author David Bodanis knows a thing or two about that, and he's here talking to us about it. Have you ever fancied a bit of space travel? No. Uh, well, in fact, I have been weightless uh, several times in my life. Uh, the way you become weightless is jump off a diving board or jump up and down. When you're coming down, you're actually weightless. What uh, Elon Musk did when he, uh, what did Elon Musk, was he one of the, no, no, the other guy. Branson? Uh, Branson was one of them. Shatner? And, uh, all We've all been people. there. We're going to come to them. <laughs> yes. And, and so with uh, uh, Bezos. And what they do is, it's like a, an amusement park ride. If you go up on an amusement park ride and it, it lets go and you fall down, you're actually weightless. And then you're weightless for five or ten seconds. And these guys were weightless for like three or five minutes. So it's like, I don't know, 50 or 70 amusement park rides. Except the difference is amusement park, amusement park rides do not spray hundreds of tons of carbon dioxide on the mere mortals left below. I, that's the idea of the mere mortals, isn't it? There's a, there's a sense with Tom Cruise that he pushes the boundaries somewhat. Um, and, and Tom Cruise's plans to go up into space, there is a suggestion that having done Mac goodness knows what in Top Gun 2, um, there's, the, the world is not enough for him. Yeah, I, uh, I think there's a couple of things going on. There, there, there's a positive ideal about space. Many people thought that, well, when radio was invented, people thought it would make a world pure and peaceful and lovely. The Internet was going to make the world pure and peaceful and lovely. Yeah, that worked out. Um, and outer space, it was going to be a place of harmony and perfection. All the, what you mentioned about the surly bounds of Earth, all the, uh, the problems, all the encrusted difficulties would be left behind. Um, yeah, right. Um, so that's one, I think that's one reason, that's one fantasy, and that's actually a positive fantasy. The other one is, if I were to put on a flight uh, suit and stand around in central London, people think, what a dork. But if I put on a flight suit and then get into this vehicle, which other people make go up and down, they think he's impressive. Impressive. When Bezos went up in, in, into what he called outer space, it was just, uh, just above the atmosphere, they wore these ridiculous flight suits. They could have dressed like Jacob Rees-Mogg and been just as effective. There's no reason to dress like 
that. But it makes you feel you're part of what in the early days we really were uh, top pilots. So what characteristics do you see in individuals who really want to travel to space? I mean, the people who we have mentioned so far, I mean, Tom Cruise admittedly is slightly different from this because he's an actor and he loves pushing, pushing, pushing the the, the physical areas. But when you're looking at the likes of Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson. Yes, I suspect without being remotely defamatory here. What does it? What What do you need to be like in order to be that kind of person who wants to do well, wants to get in the spacesuit and go up? I suppose we could start up. by by looking at what these people have in common. They're all um they're uh, they're mild individuals who are comfortable with what they have in life. They don't have to show off or oh wait sorry I got that wrong. They're not they're not comfortable with what they have. They do have to show off. They do have to get validation from other people. Think about it. Suppose you had, uh, I don't know, uh, exploited workers and gained a billion pounds. You would think, well, that's good enough. Some people say, no, I want to exploit them more and get several billion pounds and keep on going. So some of these people have, uh, there's some sort of inadequacy that makes you want to uh, uh, sit on top of this long, thrusting object with everybody staring at you and saying, oh, my God, it is so much bigger than anything I have. I have to look at them and it goes up into the sky like uh, adulating a god in ancient times. So this is for validation, for validatory purposes. There's no uh, there's no science. So so genuine uh, uh, astronauts are, are doing important stuff. Um, and someone like Tom Cruise, I have a lot of time for. Everybody who's met him says, personally, decent guy from Kentucky. He wants to film in a cool place. That That's great. But these other ones, they're not doing anything significant. Also, many people think that when you go above the Earth's atmosphere, gravity goes away or something. It actually doesn't. Uh, gravity is really strong. You're just kind of falling downwards. There's no purpose except for demonstrating uh, their superiority and this impression with those ridiculous flight suits that they're sort of tough. It's sort of like, I think another problem is super powerful people uh, often have uh, experts around them. If they have a physical trainer, it's a guy who's really, really fit. If they uh, get financial advice, it's somebody who's really, really smart. And they themselves are just, eh. So they like the idea that they themselves can go from the eh to, oh, my God. And now on The Curator, we have a lovely recipe from Aori Morota, the author of Japanese Home Cooking. She shares a recipe made with fresh ingredients. Hello everyone, my name is Mari Murata. I'm a Japanese cook based in Paris. I recently published a book, a Japanese home cookbook called Simply Japanese. And I'd like to share this recipe with you, uh, which is open baked sweet potato, because it's very simple, but lots of flavor. And I know many of uh, the people who already made them just loved it. So let's get started. It's, um, there are lots of ingredients, but um, it's very simple to make. So we have to prepare first, uh, starting by uh, preparing up one sweet potato, about uh, 500 gram. Um, and uh, you wash the skin, but don't peel it. Then you cut in half and drizzle some extra virgin olive oil. Then you start uh, to preheat the oven to 200 degrees Celsius. Celsius. And then it's like a half of the cooking is already done. So now you prepare two sauces, like sauce A, one tablespoon of gochujang. I know it's not a Japanese ingredient, but I love this spiciness and the, the things like it really flavors up the the dish so I love to add so one tablespoon of gochujang one tablespoon rice vinegar so one tablespoon raw sugar 
um, it's better to use uh, raw sugar than just white crystal sugar because I love this um, natural sweetness with a little bit of mineral in it. And a one tablespoon of soy sauce. This is the sauce A, which is a bit sour, uh, spicy, and sweet. And the sauce B, it's four tablespoons of soy sauce, half a teaspoon of ground cumin, and one teaspoon salt, and half garlic clove grated, and uh, a little bit of juice of lemon. And then now you these two sauces, plus there is a garnish. So one pinch ground cinnamon, one pinch raw sugar, four tablespoons of uh, plain soy yogurt or plain yogurt. Um, I prefer using plain soy yogurt because I myself is uh, vegan. And uh, also, so yogurt, it's uh, the taste lighter and it goes very well with this dish. And uh, one tablespoon of extra virgin olive oil, five crushed pecan nuts. If you're going to have a pecan nuts, it's no worry. You, you can use um, sesame seed or walnuts or any kind of uh, nuts you like. And two pinches ground sumac and a little bit uh, just of uh, zest of lemon and cut into thin stripes and a few dill leaves. I, I love the combination of sweet potato and dills, but if you cannot find it, you can use a coriander or shiso, which I love, like Japanese herb, or chives or anything you like. And one pinch of sea salt. So let's imagine that now uh, the oven is uh, already heat up. Then prepare the sauce, mix everything. Uh, sauce A, sauce B, uh, separately in two bowls. And cut the sweet potato you already done. So now you put the sweet potato, but you have to first wrap each piece of uh, potato in uh, aluminum foil. So it cooks steamed as well inside. And uh, put the sweet potato and bake it in, in the oven for about 40 minutes. The sweet potato is cooked when the flesh is really tender all the way through. Then place the sweet potato for, to finish on a like huge plate and sprinkle with the cinnamon and the sugar and drizzle with the yogurt, the two sauces, and then the olive oil. And sprinkle with the pecan, smack, lemon zest, and dill, and uh, scatter the sea salt overall. And that's it. Bon appétit! To the world of design now. We speak with Dutch artist and designer Dan Rosegaard. He shares his latest project, Spark, a new sustainable alternative to fireworks. The team at Studio Rosegaarde aim to transform experiences of urban environments, inspire imaginative ways of thinking and address world problems like the climate crisis. They say that clean air, clean water, clean energy and clean space are their values and their projects often incorporate light to communicate their ideas. Dan Rosegaard describes the first flicker of his idea for a sustainable alternative to fireworks called Spark after talking to some of his students. Uh, I'm a design professor and two years ago my students came to me and say our, our future world is frozen we're inheriting all the global challenges, climate change, uh, air pollution, uh, space junk, but we're not getting the toolkit to fix them. 
And I think that sort of really resonated with me. It was it, it got under my skin, right? Yeah. All the good stuff is being banned. Yeah. Hummers, <laughs> meat, airplanes, uh, for good reasons. Don't get me wrong. But at the same time, we need to celebrate. Yeah? We need to be together and and also introduce a notion of joy and wonder. And so I started to think about that. And, and traditional firework is, is prohibited in many, many cities around the world. It gives an increase in air pollution 10 times. All the dogs go crazy because of the sound. People damage their eyes, etc. So I understand why they're doing that. But but can we keep the tradition but modernize it, give it an update? So two years later, we're here in London, <laughs> Spark, um, which actually came from that drive. The technology and the design are intertwined. And what came first? Was it the design or was it the technology? Well, the notion of, of organic fireworks starts to kick in. Eh? Like, how can we make something which is biodegradable, which is somehow feeding the city and not harming it? And so we did hundreds of tests in our backyard in Rotterdam eh, with the team of designers and engineers. The early prototypes, which incorporated balloons and confetti, were trialled and then discarded, until they started working with bubbles, which, when viewed at night took on an otherworldly form. What are we looking at? Like, so, so you, you don't understand it anymore. It, it, it moved beyond the material. So what you're seeing being set up right now is actually yeah, a system of floatables, of bubbles, uh, that we can uh, control uh, their, their positions through the, through the huge park. Um, a system of, of light, smart light system, which makes sure that the light is reflected and absorbs in these sparks. And that creates a sort of cloud formation of 50 by 30 by 50 metres. These silent, biodegradable lights captivated onlookers in Bilbao's Central Park in June of this year. Um, the wind makes it always changing and uh, we can play with the colour and, and the motion. But yeah, I think it really creates the magic of, of like a fireplace, right? You keep on looking. And that's what we noticed when it was in Bilbao for the first time in a public park. Um, people come and they stay. Well, there's definitely a notion of wonder and awe that you look at it, you don't really understand what you're looking at. Coming together of, of wonder. And for some, there are fireflies, others, there are aliens trying to kidnap us or, you know, like sparks from a fireplace or, you know, everybody has his or her own interpretation. And maybe that, that's the good thing. Yeah. A lot of your works are designed to be experienced at nighttime. Mm. What's so special about the night, do you think? What is that magical quality? The night makes you feel you're part of something bigger. Because it, 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 it brings you a little out of balance. Eh? You're immersed, you're out of control. So you have to really be aware, who am I? What defines me? What do I want? What's my position? What's my role? What's my right? And, and to sort of bring back light in a curated way is, is, is really a sort of juncture position of, of those different values and, and it shines a light on you. You know, I'm, I'm, light is my language, right? Light is not decoration, but activation. It's, it's the contrast, it's, it's the position you, it forces you to make that, that we're not um, passengers, but we're crew on this planet Earth. And we have a sort of role and yeah, Maybe we shouldn't be so scared, but more curious. So we celebrate the darkness, but of course we also celebrate the light. The designer hasn't chosen just any public space for the second installation of Spark. During the Victorian period, firework celebrations would often be held on nearby Blackheath, 
and a little further down the Thames, the Royal Laboratory in Woolwich, set up in 1695, which was used for the storage and ordnance of fireworks. They were then used for coronations, celebrations of peace treaties and royal jubilees. The studio's installation follows and reinvents this tradition. A large part of Spark comes from that desire to uh, update traditions for a new generation, to bring some hope and optimism. These are historical grounds, eh? and, and may, if you know, the, the lords did huge fireworks shows right at the river. Um, but the problem was, and they did it for their own glory, is that it was uh, like most of it was burning or, or powder, and then pieces of it would fall on the, on the roofs of the normal people, quote unquote, which were mostly uh, hay or wood, would burn all to the ground. So they, all these people got really upset. And so in this area, actually, they were experimenting with new ways of fireworks. So be back here uh, with Spark in London, I feel we're sort of part of, of that tradition. And that's, that's I think, really um, beautiful for, for, for me yeah, as, as a designer. The Dutch artist tells me he's not interested in awareness or raising awareness anymore. Instead, he sees art as an activator. His work is solution-based and he believes that investment in design is paramount to future-proofing our world. Art and design offer a way to connect with nature, but also with each other, in reflection and celebration. I think we had a, our 10 years of why, why we should do it. We all know why. We all know we need to change. We all know we can't go on like this. I'm interested in how. How can we make organic firework? We need to invest in new ideas to survive. Art for me is an activator and design is an activator to make places where you feel connected with yourself, with each other, with the world around you. Um, so many people are, are, are scared of the future, right? Or completely ignorant. When is the last time you read a sort of positive article about the future? And I think Spark sort of tries to trigger that, that it shows, hey, we can celebrate in a sustainable way. There are all alternatives for ugly drones, traditional fireworks, balloons and confetti, which is horrible microplastic. We cannot control nature. We cannot dominate it. Rising sea level, COVID, air pollution. We, we've learned from that. So we, I think if we talk about being future-proof, learning from nature and, and giving it back a place into our daily lives, into our cities, that's the way to go. What would you like people to take away from this experience? The importance of celebrating together, getting rid of the sort of bubble your world becomes really small becomes over curated bump into people you hang out you talk to somebody well he or she thinks differently call it naive but i believe that's the beauty of public spaces and public art that you create diversity of thinking and exchange what if we would use beauty as a strategy to help people to accept change so that's what spark is about that you show hey look look we can do it in a different way okay it doesn't make huge amounts of sound Right? It's not the flashy, but it's more immersive. It's more silent. It's something you can look at. It's something you have to think about yourself, right? And to sort of be here in London and to sort of show that we can do it in a better way. Um, yeah, that makes me happy. And finally on the show, Mary Holland visits a converted factory space in a historically working-class neighborhood of Mexico City. On a relatively quiet street in Mexico City's Doctores neighborhood sits Laguna, 
a creative space in an unassuming warehouse building that once operated as a lace factory. This neighborhood, Doctores, is historically known for its manufacturing. Unlike its neighboring district, La Roma, which is lined with cafes, galleries, and restaurants that have drawn expats and tourists, Doctores hasn't yet had an influx of outsiders. The founders of Laguna hope it stays that way. From the outside, the warehouse doesn't look like much. It has black and green factory windows and garage doors, some of which are sprayed with graffiti. It seamlessly blends into its environment. Inside, though, the building has been transformed into a bustling creative hub. You honestly wouldn't know this unless you took a peek inside. The space, reimagined by Rio Urbano, a Mexico City-based company that reactivates forgotten urban buildings, is home to offices and studios of 45 businesses and entrepreneurs, varying in size. The tenants range from architecture studios like Productura to furniture manufacturers like Studio Metropolitana and Buna, a local coffee roaster. The diversity of these tenants is intentional. Laguna isn't just about offering office space, but a hub where ideas can be exchanged or neighbors can collaborate. What connects all of these tenants is a desire to tap into a like-minded creative community. The building, which was carefully regenerated, keeping many of the original fixtures like the factory windows, has multiple floors with terraces and a newly finished freight elevator and staircase. But at the center of this industrial space sits a cement courtyard, which many of the glass-fronted offices spill onto. It's a central area where everyone can meet. It's filled with plants and sunny yellow tables and benches. There's no better spot for a Buna brew or midday snack. In the evenings, a central bar opens its hatch, so tenants can enjoy a glass of wine after a long day. While Laguna aims to promote collaboration, it's not open to the public unless you're grabbing a coffee from Buna's coffee shop. Every so often, though, the space opens up for activations and events, especially during important weeks like Zona Marco, the city's prestigious art fair. When the space does open up, it usually does so with a bang. I've been to a pre-Zona Marco party hosted at Studio Metropolitana's workshop, which was filled with creatives from across the city, dressed in big, bold outfits and drinking champagne. It buzzed. I've also been on a regular workday when the atmosphere is more subdued, and tenants can be spotted through the glass windows and doors quietly working away. The intention to keep Laguna closed off isn't just because it's home to businesses trying to get work done, but because Rio Bono wants to respect the neighborhood. It's all about creating a community within the building and beyond. Thank you, Mary. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by Jack Jewers and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week and thanks for listening.